No doubt about it, God is good to Israel, good to those who are pure in heart. But I nearly missed it, miss seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have, who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world. Pretentious with arrogance, they wear the latest fashions and violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer, using words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air, loud mouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has gotten, what has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I had have given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Still, when I tried to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. You can grab a seat. Thank you, Dana. So you might be wondering, after the song that we sang, why did we read that? <laughs> that song, right? God's steadfast. And then it's like the psalmist is, really? Are you sure? Is, is he really steadfast? In a lot of ways, you know, um, we kind of joked about it when we start, but it's easy to kind of step off of like a high of Easter weekend, right? Like a, um, this time where, especially for us, like we spent like 40 days building up to Easter, right? We put a lot of time and energy and prayer, a lot of emotion into being just exposed before the Lord, just letting ourselves be seen by him fully so that we might live fully in him and all these things. We, we spent a lot of time getting to Easter Sunday, and then spent just as much time and energy on Easter Sunday, right? Like, at least sugar high. You know, we, we, got, we got really built up for it and then maybe crashed by the end of the day. But, like, it was this really emotional, really physical, really tactile touch, touch thing that we, we reached our destination. We got there. And then, so it's kind of easy to just kind of fall back off into the norms of life after Easter, right? It's kind of easy to just kind of take a break, kind of just chill out kind of move back into the ups and downs and the norms of life. But the reality is uh, that we celebrated on Easter was this marvelous declaration, right? That, that we've entered a new country, uh, a new land, that as Paul talks about it, that we were baptized into Christ, going under the water, dying to our old sin and self, coming up out of the water, entering a new country of grace. And having made it, or it's kind of like, hey, we're there. Like, let's sit in the green pastures. Let's enjoy the still waters. Like, we made this long journey of Lent and into Easter. We got to declare that we are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That's what set the tone for us, right? That's where we find ourselves. Ironically, though, it's in this place of rest, in this place of resurrection, where we're not championed to sit and rest, we're champion to get up and to do, to do, to live. God with us, alive in us, is where Jesus leads us, and Jesus tells us to get on with living. In fact, every post-resurrection story in our scripture concludes with Jesus calling us, commissioning us not to fall back into the usual routines, not to have entered the high of Easter and just kind of coast, but rather calls us into the fullness of the life that he has made for us that he has prepared for us. 
that Jesus calls us into to enter the ordinary with a new clarity. In Matthew, he says, go and make disciples, baptize, teach, observe all that I've commanded you. In Mark, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the good news, the gospel to all of creation, the whole of creation, everything around you. That God is good, that God is restoring, that God has plans and purposes and that we're caught up in them. And Acts, he says, go and be witnesses to, Judea, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to everything around us. Let's witness to the life that we have in God. And in John, he tells Peter, the one who felled him, and yet the one who loves him still, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep and follow me. Being alive to God expands our lives, expands our lives. It calls us into something larger in time, space, purpose, and future than ourselves, yet totally inclusive of ourselves, right? We're caught up in this resurrection life. The new country of grace, as the psalmist tells us, is like walking in the land of the living. If before Easter, we're walking through the the valley of shadows death, right? this, This dark place of going into the pit of life so that we might find that God's gone further than us and holds us and brings us into life new. Now, post-Easter, Easter land is the land of the living, an ever-expanding world of God's affection and activity on our behalf, our collective behalf, our as his children, his servants, his creatures, his friends. The pattern, rhythm, and routine we're meant to fall into after Easter morning, every morning that we wake up in Easter morning, is a way of life in steps with God's heart and hands. A way of life that is, I'm a, I am dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did, right? An arrangement of our daily life that cultivates flourishing, not patterns that foster decay. We've let those things go. The old self is gone. The new is here. A practice of living that we learned about at the beginning of our Lenten pilgrimage, where our Heavenly Father will instruct us and teach us in the way we should go. He will counsel us with his eye upon us. This is the life that we live now, post-Easter, right? As we learned and celebrated on Sunday, everything out to keep us from true life with God, including our own stubbornness and sin, has been destroyed. The psalmist said last week, for your namesake, O Lord, you preserved our life. In your righteousness, you brought our souls out of trouble. In your steadfast love, you have cut off the enemies who pursue our souls. and You have destroyed all the adversaries of our souls, everything that's after us that holds us and keeps us from life in its fullness has been destroyed. For we are your servants. We're alive, again, anew. And so we don't sit idly by, but instead get on really living. More specifically, living by faith. This is how Paul says it in Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, the life I live every day, getting up, brushing my teeth, going to work, spending time at the gym, in my neighborhood with my kids, Every day, the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's kind of what the song that Kyler led was saying, right? He's steadfast, and we want to live into and out of this steadfastness, this faith in life with God. But the psalm that Dana read for us seems kind of like maybe it's not as easy as we think it is. Maybe there's times when living by faith isn't just a natural thing, that post-Easter feels a little bit like pre-Easter, that maybe the path that we follow to get into the new country, into this land of living with God, is in some ways and manners the same continue, the way that we continue to live in our Father's kingdom. 
And the truth is, while the movement from our old self and sin to cross into the grave and out again seems all fine and good in abbreviated seasons. We said, remember Lent had a beginning and an end. It was kind of nice to know where we were going. And maybe it feels almost empowering in its initial moments when we first discover life for the first time in Jesus. The way of Jesus, the life that Jesus lived and shows us how to live. A life of sacrifice, a life of listening to the Father, a life of other being other-oriented and not self-oriented often feels, well, kind of foolish, doesn't it? If we're honest. A routine of being in pursuit of living that is counterintuitive to the world we inhabit. Living resurrected, it seems, is not as easy as lying around in the green grass of Psalm 23, right? Luckily, though, we have Psalm 73. Luckily, in most traditions, Easter day isn't the end of Easter. It's the beginning of the Easter season. It's just the beginning of a new season. It's not, hey, we've got there, we've arrived, we've made it. It's no, now we've entered into a land, a lifestyle, a way of living, and now we get to walk into it in greater depths. In this psalm, Psalm 73 is dubbed the most remarkable and satisfying of all the psalms. And so let's discover why. Let's enter one final psalm of Lent. Springtime is here on the afterside of Easter. Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 73. We're just going to walk through it together, spend some time reflecting on it. Let ourselves, as we've done over the last eight weeks, enter into the Psalms, asking the Spirit to open our minds and hearts to show us how we might live in the land of the living. If you remember, we began our Lenten season in, our, in this, the, the Psalms of Lent in Psalm 6. And Psalm 6 kind of outlined for us, mapped for us, a course of the Lenten pilgrimage. It provided us kind of a turn-by-turn movement that we would walk through the shadows of the valley of death into the tomb, into the grave, but then out of that into Easter morning. Like That's where we were going. It showed us kind of this movement. And it didn't show us just in the language that it used. It showed us in the way that it was structured, the actual structure of the psalm. In the same way, Psalm 73 lays out a movement or structure for us that is similar. It maps out for us our course to living by faith. If Psalm 6 showed us how we move through Lent, how we move from death to life. Psalm 73 shows us how we move into the fullness of life, living by faith. The psalm provides us um, a charted progression through honest doubt into joyous trust of faith becoming sight. Here's what the psalm kind of looks like on the screen. I think we've got it for you. So it's, this is what's called a chiastic structure. This is more information than anybody needs, but this is how the psalm is designed. And so the way the psalm is designed is it has this beginning and ending, face sides. So in just a second, we're going to talk about the first verse and the last verses. It starts where it ends. And then it moves to this progression, a confession, an observation, an admission. And then the center is the center, where faith becomes sight. It is the main part of the psalm. It's where our attention is supposed to move its way down into and kind of land on. But then the psalm repeats observation, confession, and admission, but from a different perspective. And so it moves into this, this kind of chiastic structure. And the psalmist, the poet, has designed it this way to help us understand even our own movement of faith and how we move into a life lived by faith. So now that we kind of see where we're going, that we're going to move towards, we're going to make a declaration at the first and then move through faith struggle into faith becoming sight, and then with faith becoming sight, move back into this kind of foundational 
um, um, declaration. Let's go ahead and just jump in. Go deeper into the Easter lands together. Verse 1. The psalmist says, Truly God is good to Israel, good to those who are pure in heart. Now this is a wisdom statement. This is saying what is a true thing, right? But like we saw in Psalm 32, our second psalm of Lent, um, the psalmist is not just making a declaration, a premise at the first part. He's making a conclusion. It's important for us to kind of understand that this is a concluding psalm. This is his conclusion after he has gone through all the things he's about to walk us through, right? Because here's the thing. Like, if, if this is just a premise, that God is truly good to Israel, that God is steadfast, always steadfast, then what, if, what happens when it feels like God isn't? Isn't there kind of a na- naivety to it? What do we do? Like, it's easy to declare this and kind of be at the surface level of this, and then when life happens, lose this, Right? But the psalmist doesn't want us to lose this, the truth of this. He wants us to be able to live in the truth of this. And so he says it at the beginning as a statement that we might all say yes and amen to, that God is good to to the good, that God is good to those who are after him, whose hearts are for him. And to some extent, we kind of believe that God is only good to those who are after him and God who are for him, right? That only good things come to those who are good, right? Because when we take the truth at just the surface level, that's where we go. But that's not what we experience in life, is it? And so what we'll discover is that this entire psalm is, as Walter Brueggemann says, an act of faith. It's a mighty engagement with God, a struggle against God, and a wondrous communion with God. And only by moving into our doubt and companionship with God can we, can the psalmist speak the words of faith, and they be true words, and not just naive words. For the psalmist has experienced himself as Israel, it's important for us to know, He's, he is Israel. And if we think about who Israel is, here's who Israel is. They're ones who are graciously, without justification, chosen by God. They were small people, small tribe, had no inherent value other than just their being, right? And God chose them. They were as a recipient in the community of those with a long history of unmerited miracles. God continuously saved them and worked for them, who led them out of their own mess over and over and over and over again, right? Not just against their enemies, but against their own rebellion and their own disbelief, right? Whose actions, whose only action in their salvation was belief and grace, and whose ordering of life was only to lay claim to an unquestioned worth graciously bestowed upon them. Their whole order of being was so that they could claim not something that they've done, but what God has done for them. And they could live out of what God has done for them. They certainly were the epitome of those who did not possess a pure heart, a single-minded heart. Nevertheless, there is in Israel and God's people's communal history a, um, a persistent lineage of those who lived by faith in the grace of God, who who live now by faith in the grace manifested in Jesus Christ, those who were preserved by God's steadfast love and who willingly placed themselves, their very souls in his hands, or in the words of our Easter song, that they remembered the days of old. They meditated on all that God had done. They pondered the work of his hands. They stretched out their hands to him, their souls thirsting for him like a parched land, and their souls being lifted up to him, right? The psalmist has discovered himself as one of those. And the way of being encountered with such a people is to have followed the Lenten path and come out on the other side. 
to be ones who came to the place where we too lift up our souls to the Lord. Much like dying to old self and sin, living by faith requires us to go through the pain of doubt. This is what the psalm will help us discover. Through the pain of doubt, the internal suffering and hurt and frustration of faith, in order for the character of confident hope to form within us. We go through the pain of doubt, the struggle of faith, and if we admit it, we all struggle with faith, don't we? We all struggle with believing that God is steadfast, always steadfast, right? That God is good and his way is good. And that, as the psalmist will say, that it's all worth it. But we don't get around it. We don't get rescued from the doubt. We rather push through in the doubt with God to a place where our character is formed and hope becomes something that is real, confident. To a place where we are single-minded, singularly focused of heart. Develop through enduring the pain and struggles of doubt and faith and relationship with God rather than being rescued from them. We must recognize these opening marks, again, not primarily as a premise, but a conclusion. The afterwards of the psalmist spoken so that we might see with the same faith he possesses. The side of faith that comes only through the experience of faith. And that's why Psalm 73 is so remarkable and satisfying. It removes all of our naivety. Here's what one scholar says. He says, now the unuttered words of resentment, the unuttered words which we all feel in living by faith at times, right? These these words that, that Dana read for us seem pretty harsh, harsh towards others, harsh towards God, that we feel unable to utter have been uttered. Now the unthinkable thoughts of hostility towards others and even God have been thought, We've been exposed completely. Our heart's completely exposed. This speaker has been surprised to find the truth of God dealing with his people and their way of life with him emerge in fresh form. And as though the speaker is saying, come, I will show you how I learned to make this faith affirmation in an adult world of hurt and envy and inequity. Psalm 73 is an assault on our naive faith. It helps us grow in maturity of faith that lasts. Only through the purifying of heart that comes through the struggles of faith, the wrestling with God, do we, in the words of Jesus, see God. Does faith become sight? Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. Okay, so we've started where we're ending. We know where we're gonna end, so let's walk through it. Verses two and three. The psalmist says, this is the beginning of his confession an honest confession. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My foothold had all but given away, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Listen, through Lent, we learned to be honest, honest with ourselves and honest before God. In the atmosphere of forgiveness, mercy, and grace, honesty of heart is not a luxury, but the only way to breathe, right? That's what the psalmist knows. The psalmist doesn't start out with any sort of like Lenten kind of pretense, right? Where he's like trying to work through all of his struggles of who sinned against him and why he feels this way and what his struggles are. He just says, as for me, listen, I'm not quite as steady as I thought. My, my, my feet feel a little slippery. The, the foundation of what I believe doesn't feel quite as firm. 
And if I'm honest, it doesn't feel that it's firm because, well, I, I, I'm kind of after the same thing everybody else is after. I feel like the what they get is what I really want. I'm envious of those that I saw that had prosperity. Those whose prosperity seemed to come because they didn't really have any consideration for the life that I'm living, the sacrificial life, the life after God that I'm trying to live. Faith says in verse one that God is good to those um, um, and does good for his people, especially those who are dead set on following his ways. And the assumption then is twofold. First, we assume that only, you know, God, the only good comes to the singularly focused people or that devastation comes to those who are not, right? But the good, the good always triumphs and the good and the not good always fails. And yet that is not how life seems to work out. And the psalmist is honest. That isn't how life works out. That's not how life works. The psalmist confesses doubt in the experienced fundamental truth of his faith. He says, listen, God, if you are good to Israel and good to pure in heart, well, how come their life is good too? But not, how, and not just how come their life is good, how come their life seems better? That's nothing anybody else, any of us have thought though, right? We've never, we've never been like that, right? Never? What he stands on, the Easter ground he walks on, the psalm, appears to the psalmist to be a slippery slope. His foundation crumbling all because he is jealous of the life of those who do not follow Jesus through death and grave and back again. Who aren't, who aren't willing to live for other like Jesus lived, but who seem more interested in living for self. In other words, the psalmist questions if God really is good, if God's actually way is actually best, if the psalmist indeed desires to live by faith or to live for something else, and if all this life with God is truly worth it. That's pretty fundamental and foundational, isn't it? That's not just a questioning of some random truth of Scripture. That's questioning the very foundation of his life with God. That's a pretty honest place to be, isn't it? Have you been that honest with yourself, with God? Again, the, the cool part of this psalm is it's a, it's a conversation with God, right? The psalmist isn't just speaking to himself. He's speaking of his doubts to God. He's confessing to God. God, I'm not really sure you are who you say you are or that I want what you want or that your way is the best way. Have you ever admitted that you don't always walk with unshakable faith? That your struggle with the way the world appears to work versus how you think it should because of your faith seems to be off a little? The psalmist's honest questions and struggles leads to how the psalmist sees the world. And this is important, right? Because when we're struggling like this, when we've all been to this place that the psalmist is in, post-Easter, again, this is not a psalm prayed by somebody who's, who's not discovered faith. He has faith. He's struggling with how faith works out in life. And it affects how he sees the world. And how does the psalmist see the world? Well, he has a rather authentic, uh, raw observation of the world. Verse four. For they have no pains in their death. Their bodies are sound and sleek. And he ends this section, verses four through 11 with, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? What the psalmist observes, what he sees is a world where self-interest wins out. A world appearing to have found the good way to live without any knowledge from someone or something on high. 
What the psalmist observes is not good to the pure in heart, but the success of the genuinely autonomous. Let's just read it in, in the ESV version. It says this, for they have no pangs until their death. In other words, their life doesn't seem to be that hard. Their bodies are, are sound. The word in the ESV it translates it fat, but that's a compliment, not a, not a negative in this, right? It's that they've got more than enough. They're not starving. They're sleek. They're trim. They're, they're able to, to, to function well. They are, not in, they, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of humankind. There's something different about them that feels like I don't get it, right? Like, have you ever felt the stricken of faith like a little bit where faith refil- feels restricting? They're like, well, they don't experience that, right? This is what the psalmist is observing. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The way that, that they operate is they operate in themselves away from others. Pride, I'm above them. Violence, I'm against them or they're against me. Their eyes swell out their, their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. It seems to work. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? It's interesting if you notice this psalmist as he's making this observation, he uses a term, they, throughout right? They, look at them. They in the psalm, according to one scholar, engage in self-care and self-love to the point of self-indulgence. They live for themselves at the expense of others, forgetful of others, resented by those who are schooled passionately in the care of neighbor. They are skilled and adept at self-interest and have no shame about it. And you hear in the psalmist this kind of judgmentalist kind of view of that, right? But it's a weird mixture of judgmentalism. It's like, I see them taking advantage of people. I see them like living in a way that's self-absorbed and not neighbor-oriented, right? I see them taking advantage of economically how the world works and living it up to the fullest. And like, it's like, oh, I can't believe they would do that. And at the same time, that's what I want. <laughs> at the same time, I want the thing that they're after. And listen, God's people seem to buy into it. Even, even your own people like, seem to hear it and see it and recognize it and just they lap it up like dogs in the version that Dana read, right? The, the, psalmist, um, the psalmist confesses that um, the scary thing of all this is when he looks at a life of self-interest, it actually works, or it seems to. It seems like engaging the world from a purely autonomous and economic perspective, getting what I can from it and from others, disconnected from others and God really does lead to a good life. The psalmist's raw observation leads the psalmist into a startling admission. I mean, again, just the psalmist is super candid, right? He's candid in this kind of way of like all, all religious people, right? This is what religious people do. We kind of judge, we say they a lot, right? And so he's like, he's kind of judging, but at the same time, he's putting himself in the place of those being judged. He's saying like, I, I know that it's not right. It's not, it's not the way it's designed, but it's, oh, it's what I want still, right? And he kind of says it in verse 12. He says this, behold, this is a declaration. Behold, these are the wicked 
always at ease. They increase in riches. It's actually opposite of verse one, right? It's not that God does good for the godly and the pure in heart. It's does the wicked get what they, they want. And he's like saying it, and he's saying it as if he believes it. Behold, oh my goodness, this is how the world really works. But as soon as he says it, as soon as he says it, something begins to, to kind of feel off for him. Because then he says this, this is the way the world works. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's like, this is the way the world works. Why do I live the way that I'm living? Why live by faith? Why live in the way of Jesus? Why? Why is it at? Why would I live that? None of us have ever said that, right? Why do I live this way? Why would I put myself through this if this is the way the world really works? But as soon as the psalmist begins to, to utter that, there's something sickens him in his own stomach. Verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Something doesn't settle right, even in my observation of how the world seems to work. And I would bet to, I would bet to, to say, like reading this and thinking about this, we would say when our stomach feels unsettled that something is wrong, Right? And we would assume that we would want to settle our stomach. But what's actually unsettling, that, that feeling of unsettledness isn't something that's wrong in the sense of the unsettledness isn't wrong. The unsettledness points to something that's wrong, right? It's a stirring in his stomach of faith, of, of truth that doesn't jive with the way he's seeing the world. He's feeling, feeling faith. It won't let him go. The thing that drew him into the Easter land won't let him go all the way out of it again, back into the way he sees the world working in this very moment, right? And listen, we get that, the portion of that in verse 15. He says, if I had said that. So there's like this piece of like this admission in verse 12 and 13. This, behold, this is the way the world works. I can't believe I've actually given my life to this thing. And then the, the sinking feeling of, oh no, what did I just do? If I, good thing I didn't say that out loud, right? Good thing nobody in the gospel community knows that or DNA knows that, right? Good thing I didn't say that to anybody else, right? Because if I had done that, if I had said that, well, man, then I would have just, I would have just showed all my cards. I would have offended the entire generation. <laughs> I would have betrayed the generation of your children. All the faith before me, in the faith of those who are around me, I would have just betrayed it all, right? So there's kind of this, this, this thing that's happening in the psalmist. Like he's like, oh man, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Maybe there is something to this. Maybe the thing that I'm feeling is this kind of like, what feels like a betrayal. Again, this isn't right. It's not a betrayal. Well, it feels like a betrayal. Why does it feel like a betrayal? Because maybe there is a history of faith. Maybe a world of self-interest, living by our self-interest, isn't a world that perpetuates and does the good for the generations to come. The psalmist slowly, slightly, ever so slightly, is beginning to feel that there's something holding him to solid ground. But again, what did it come through? It didn't come just through a naivety of truly God is good to Israel 
and good to the pure in heart. I'm just going to hold fast to it. No, it came through confessing his own doubt, his own struggles, his own observations, as raw as they were, with the Lord, before the Lord. And then he begins to feel this unease. And the unease is, is magnified and reaches its crescendo in verse 16. But when I thought to understand this, of how the world really works, and why I'm so dis thrown off because the way I believe the world works by faith and the way I see the world working around me doesn't line up, but I know that it's not true, right? Like the way I see and what I feel and what I believe doesn't, doesn't hit all together. And I don't really understand why it doesn't hit all together. And so I get a really bad headache. I'm wearisome. When I, but when I thought about to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. Tires, tiresome, it wore them out, right? That is until verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I saw the whole picture. It says, I discerned their end. I, dis- I saw the whole picture. Verse 17 is the center of the poem and the center of life. The place where faith, the faith we espouse, becomes a clear vision of everyday life. In the sanctuary of God, the presence of God, his dwelling, is where we see the whole picture of reality. In the presence of life itself, their end, literally translated their afterward, their future, will unmake everything they've lived for, will show that, that we get to see the world as living self-centered unmakes everything that we're after and that God actually is good. And listen, this is kind of a declarative statement because the psalmist doesn't seem in verse 17 to explain it. It's just there. There's something about being in the presence of God, recognizing himself in the presence of God that steadies him. Notice it wasn't what the psalmist did. It was simply being in the presence of God in the sanctuary of God, the sight, faith became sight. And the rest of our text, the rest of the psalm is him fleshing that out for us. He says, this is where we get to in our doubting. If we doubt with God, if we struggle with a faith with God, we wind up in a place in the sanctuary of God, right? Which is kind of contrary to the way we think about it, right? We think about getting to the sanctuary of God. I can't have doubt and I can't have struggle and I have to have solid faith. The Psalm says the very opposite. He says, no, no, you get to the sanctuary by doubting with me, struggling with me, being like Jacob and wrestling, right? That's actually what the term Israel means. Did you know that? The, the name Israel, God is good to Israel, is God is good to those who wrestle with God and overcome. Who wrestle with God leads us into the sanctuary of God and in the presence of God, through doubt, we're able to see with faith. Until it makes a decisive turn in the perspective of the psalmist, a movement from wrestling with God to communion with God. A moment when, just like Jacob, when he's wrestling with God, this, um, this, and, and he's wrestling all night long, and finally, finally, the wrestle match seems over and there's communion. Communion through a limp, right? But we won't, we won't take the analogy too far. And the verse which follows explores this word, world of faith. 
what seeing ourselves in the world through faith in Jesus really means. In verse 18, the, obser- the, the psalmist makes an observation again, but this time it's a transparent observation. It's not just a raw observation. It's an observation that he sees through his own self in the world to seeing what's really happening underneath everything. He says, truly, in verse 18, truly you set them in separate places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. What we observe at the surface of self-interest success is really a dream. An unreal fantasy of life that both under its initial perceptions and or in its end will not satisfy us. And don't satisfy now. It never has. There is never enough. We don't need to, like, listen, it's not a Christian thing to say that having everything you want, it, like, leads to a good life. There are plenty of testimonies throughout human history to say that is untrue, right? That getting all you want is never satisfying. To live life just for yourself never actually satisfies. That is the testimony of humanity. You don't have to look far. You can actually look on Twitter or Instagram. I don't, but you can. Facebook, all those things. You can look on those things, and that's what you will discover, that there is never enough, that it never, you're never satisfied when you're just yourself, when the world's just about you. But even if there's not satisfaction in the moment, there's definitely not a life forever. They, those who seem to have it all together to success, right? Remember, we're going back to the day of the first part of the psalm. They have no more control over the future than those without. Those who have and seemingly have everything. No pangs in death. The world doesn't operate the misfortunes. They have no more control over their life than we do. Right? That's true. It's absolutely true. The things we long for when we self-absorb the autonomous life are not bad in and of themselves, but we are naive to assume that such things make life true or whole or happy or forever. But lest we think the psalmist is moving in his clarity to a vision of judgmentalism, again, a vision of they, 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 he offers us another startling admission in verse 21. So he's talking about they, like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, this floating mist, right? This, 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 this thing. And then he says in verse 21, when my soul, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The psalmist, safe in the atmosphere of grace, admits that he is they. The psalmist admits that he is they. There is no us and them. There's just us. One who brought into, bought into the fantasies of this age and who, in this moment, because of God's grace, recognizes the silliness of his fascination with what appears to be success. He understands that his obsession with these phantoms has come because he has neglected what is real and solid, his relationship toward God. Because what does he say? He's like, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I was they, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. 
This is going directly back into Psalm 32, verse 9. Remember Psalm 32, verse 8. We read it a minute ago. The Lord loves to teach us, to counsel us in his ways, to show us how to walk step by step into life and life with him. But the very next verse is, he does that so that we don't have to be like dumb mules who have to be carried around by bit and, bit and, um, bit and bridle, who are like beasts, brutish, who cannot commune and have counsel and have relationship, but are just used, right? We've acted towards God like mules. <laughs> We've been beasts, non-relational, who have to be pulled by God rather than counseled, taught, shown. The psalmist feels the weight of what he's neglected in his relationship, of intimacy, what he's missed. But listen, the beautiful part of this psalm is he doesn't linger there. Sometimes in our life of faith, this is, we, we get to this point. We recognize the foolishness of our own kind of like obsession with this, the ways of this world. We see the truth and the silliness behind it. We know deep down that there's more to life than life just about us, right? But we recognize how we often are prey to the things of the, of the way around us. We are they. And we feel bad. We feel like beasts towards God. And we just kind of sit and waller like beasts. But the psalmist doesn't. He won't let us. We're in the land of the living. And so he makes a final astounding confession. He says in verse 25 or 23, nevertheless, or in, actual, in the actual original language, but as for me, it goes right back into verse two. The psalm started with the confession. But as for me, I'm on a slippery slope. But now he says, but as for me, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You hold, not just my hand. Listen, the right hand is not just a hand. It's a hand of strength. It's the hand by which you operate life. This is, the, this is not just a, like the Lord holding his hand. That's a part of it. There's a, image, a piece of the imagery that's meant to be this relational thing. But it's this idea that the Lord holds your whole strength. All of your life. Your life at its fullest, its strongest. He holds it. I'm continually with you. You hold me, my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. What does the psalmist do in these texts? He receives. That's it. Nevertheless, but as for me, but as for me, was a confession that led to a slippery slope and now it's the same confession that leads to the foundation of faith that God acts, is good, and is experienced as such by those whose hearts are tied to his. And then he says this in verse 25, who in heaven is there but you? Who else is there to show what life really is, to set life's course in history and trajectory? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What other alternative would I take? What I want. And then he makes another confession, but this time a confession that's not like a confession of sin, but a confession of what we all really feel. But it's not so true. Sometimes the Psalms confess what we feel, and what we feel is maybe really felt, but not true. But this time, the psalmist, having made this journey, is able to confess both what he feels 
and what is true. He says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. I'm weak. At times I'm not strong enough. My faith isn't strong enough. My life isn't strong enough to live this way of life with you. Sometimes it fails. Sometimes it really is on a slippery slope. Sometimes I struggle in it. But God is the strength of my heart. That even when I am weak, God is strong. Even when I am weak, God is strong. Even when I lack faith, God's faith is not lacking. For God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Portion there has this kind of vivid imagery of two different things. It has kind of this deal of, of it's all that I need, all that I've been given. But it's also this idea of friendship, that God is the one who friends in a more literal translation. God is the one who friends me forever. Who is my dearest companion, my best friend forever. I mean, think about that, the movement of this psalm. From one who doubts the way of God into this deep, intimate friendship with God. That even though he knows he's going to struggle, slip, fall, and fail, that God is his strength and his friend. So he's not worried about it. He's not anxious about it. He knows that in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his failing, God is always faithful. God is always his friend. And in communion with him, he will wind up in the same place that he is in this moment, in the strength of the Lord. I am always continually held by him, guided by him. And afterwards, through all of it, I wind up in the place where he had always intended me to be, in his presence forever. And then, Last but not least, he says what he said at the beginning. Autonomy doesn't work. He says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Listen, those who leave you fall apart. That's the way the world really works. It may not seem like it all the time, but if we are able to see through it and admit the truth of it, that's the way it really works. It doesn't work out the way we time it. But if we leave you, things fall apart. But for me, one more time, but for me, in verse 28, it is good to be near God. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist is now unabashed, unabashedly a companion of God without apology one who has ventured out into the land of the living and discovered how pleasing it is to have God as his friend, his fellow, his fellow companion. Honest doubt, wrestling with God, even against God, is how we see, fill the world with God, leads to communion with God. Wrestling through, again, goes back to the psalm, I think there's the last slide of the structure. Wrestling through our struggle of doubt our struggle of faith allows us to commune with God. In his presence, not merely a movement into a place of worship is where we will, we will continue to, have, to be open to the friendship and strength and we'll see the world in ourselves and our place in this world with truth and clarity where we will learn to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. That's how we live in Easter lands. That's how we move forward, not just on Easter day declaring Sin is dead. We're alive to God. That's what Jesus did. But getting to experience it and live it in the fullness of life. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that... Um, I think that you're so different than, than I often assume. I can't speak for everyone in this room, Father, Lord, but you know my own heart of doubt and, and strength where it fails. And as the psalmist declares, Father, Lord, there's not a... Um, There's not a pushing away from us in that doubt, but there's a continually holding us. Help us to be ones who don't run or hide or avoid, but who because of Jesus struggle with you, wrestle with you until the faith that you've given us, your faith becomes the way in which we see the world and live in it. Not just for our good, but for the good of those around us. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray.